0: Righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here on the Lord's Day to worship you, Father. We ask that you would help us to hear, you would help me to to teach well, Father, but you would help all those listening to hear, um, to hear your truth and treasure that truth. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. All right. So we're nearing the end of our study in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, We are now on chapter 31, and there is only one more chapter um, left in the confession. So nearing the end here. Um, Today we'll be doing uh, chapter 31, as I just said, of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. So we'll be talking about that. Um, question uh, Question one... Uh, in your uh, question sheet, is briefly outlined chapter 31. Normally, I would have it written on the board for people to look at, but as you can see, there is no board today. So, um, and it's quite a long outline, so I recommend uh, apparently downstairs. I guess they might be using it downstairs. I don't know. Oh, it is in the closet? Oh, okay. Well, regardless, I don't have it right now. Neither do I have the outline written on it, so. Uh, if you are interested in an outline of the chapter, I do recommend um, looking in Waldron's book for the answer to that question. Um, question two, uh, what does, well, actually, before I go that, I should probably actually read the uh, confession. So uh, this is chapter 31, and um, it's, all, it's not a very long uh, chapter, it's just three paragraphs, so I will read that. Paragraph one, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ. And behold, the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls, separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Paragraph two, at the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And then paragraph three, the bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made con- uh, conformable to his own glorious body. So question two on your sheet is What does the phrase intermediate state signify? Because we're going to be talking a lot about the intermediate state today. And intermediate means in between. So we're going to be talking about, at least for the first part of this lesson, uh, the in-between state between our death And our resurrection. Uh, When we die, when people die, they're either going to go to heaven or hell, but they have not yet received their uh, immortal bodies. We're uh, we're still awaiting that. Um, And this is in contrast to the eternal state. After the resurrection and the final judgment, there are no more major milestones in human history, and thus it's called the eternal state, because we will not be changing uh, from the state we're in once we're there, either in heaven or hell. So that's, that's the contrast there. Does anybody have any questions on that terminology? All right. Question three. What are the two uh, key scriptural distinctions crucial to a proper understanding of the intermediate state? Um, so there's the distinction between body and soul. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily get into a, a discussion of uh, bipartite and tripartite um, uh, in regards to... The, humanity if a human is composed of humanity is composed of two parts or three parts suffice to say that um, we're just dealing with the distinction of the material side of man and the immaterial side of man the uh, body and soul and then waldron also has the distinction between the righteous and the wicked even prior to the final judgment the righteous and the wicked dead are treated differently and they're going to go to different locations Does anybody have any questions about that or comments? All right. Question four, is it scriptural to assert that the soul is immortal? And in what sense is it? So as we uh, heard from the confession, the confession describes our soul as immortal. And it is appropriate. It is scriptural to say that it is immortal. Um, Although not in every sense of the word. For example, some of the Greeks had the idea that the soul was uncreated And it's in that sense immortal, that it's uncreated, incapable of ceasing to exist. And that's not a correct understanding of the immortality of the soul. Our souls were created by God, and we are forever dependent upon him to sustain us. If he were to cease from sustaining us, obviously he's not said that he would do that. But if he were to cease from sustaining us, we would cease from existence. So we're not immortal in that sense. Instead, what is meant by immortal is that we will not cease from existing because nothing else in the universe can cause our soul to stop from existing. Our souls will never cease to exist, whether we are wicked or good, whether we go to heaven or hell, uh, and whether we're in the intermediate state or the eternal state. And I have Revelation 14 here. What do I have Revelation 14 here for? Um, Sorry, one second. Oh yes, I wanted to um, make the point that um, some uh, people want to deny that even in hell, uh, or people want to deny that in hell people continue to exist. That's a, that's a view that's gained some traction here in the, uh, in the recent decades. Uh, so I just wanted a proof text to show that yes, even the unrighteous uh, that go to hell do continue in their existence. Uh, their soul does not cease to exist. Revelation 14 9 through11, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, they shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast, and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name so this is a description of the wicked and it says specifically the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever so this is this is never ending and they have no rest day nor night it does not describe a cessation of existence they are continuing to exist um question f- was there any questions on that before we move on all right question 5 What is the scriptural support for the idea that the body and soul are two different things and that the soul continues to exist after the body dies? Um, So the next proof text we'll come back to several times because it's very important. Could I get somebody to read 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 8?
1: Upon with our house, which is in heaven, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, we be groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, he that has brought us for the self same thing as God, he also hath given unto us the earnest in the spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for so we walk.
0: So the key verse there is the last one there, verse 8. Uh, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Ooh. To be absent from the body, at least in the intermediate state, is to be present with the Lord. It's fairly straightforward there. Um, there's also uh, Genesis 2-7 in conjunction with Ecclesiastes twelve seven. Genesis 2-7 and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then Ecclesiastes twelve seven, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So man being made of dust will return to dust, but our spirit will return to God, the God who made us. And then there's Matthew uh, 10, 20, uh, ten, twenty-eight, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both body or soul and body in hell. So there's a distinction here between the body and the soul. Any questions on that or comments? All right, question six. What crucial balance should guide the Christian as he thinks about death? Um, So we're not to fear death. Uh, We're not to be indifferent to death we're to look forward to death without necessarily seeking it. And I think the, uh, um, a good passage for reflecting how we should think about death is Philippians one verses 20 through 25. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing, I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death for to me, uh, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in strait betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. So... For Paul, he recognizes to die and be with the Lord is much better for him, but it's much better for, in this case, the Philippians if he stays because he can be a help to them. And that's ultimately the way we should think about our our, our lives here. We all recognize, if we are Christians, we recognize to be in heaven is far better than to be on the earth where sin abounds and pain, and death, Uh but at the same time, if we are Christians, we want to still continue to serve our neighbor. So while we are here, we will live to serve the Lord. Um, that's, I think, the, uh, the correct way to think about things. Does anybody have any questions or comments? No questions or comments today. All right. Um, all right. I'll take that. I'll take that comment. Um, question seven, what is the fundamental assertion of the Bible about the intermediate state of the believer? So we, we've sort of already addressed this, um, but, and as we've read before, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, we will be in heaven with our savior if we are in Christ. And that's what actually makes heaven so great. It's not that we go to heaven in order to have all the pleasures there and Christ and God are just one pleasure among many but it's that we will be with the creator of the universe who is perfect and glorious in all things. He is the reason that the believer is excited for heaven, not because of some carnal pleasures but because God is there, the God whom we love. Any questions? All right. No, no. We'll we'll get to a discussion of that. <laughs> No, exactly. Question eight, how should heaven be defined biblically? So heaven is the place where God and his glory is specially manifested. Could I get somebody to read Isaiah 63, verse 15? Isaiah 63, verse 15. So heaven is the habitation of his holiness and glory. Now, the Bible does appear to give us a tripartite view of heaven. That is, there are three parts of heaven or three heavens. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such as one caught up to the third heaven. So he's here describing someone who went to the third heaven. Um, implying that there are three heavens. And the way I've heard this explained, and it does seem to actually fit with the biblical data, is that um, the three heavens are our atmosphere, what we would say where the clouds are. Then you have what we would consider space. And the third heaven is where God resides. Um, Whether or not you take this view, um, recognize that there are three heavens and that God specifically resides in the highest heaven. That is where his glory is specifically uh, manifest. Uh any questions on that? Comments? Yes. Sorry, going back to one
1: question mm-hmm. about the resurrection of our bodies and not being made perfect until the
2: last day. Mm-hmm. Not so
0: it's no he does not remain in that state his body is uh buried in the ground so his soul is somewhat detached it's detached from his body and resides in heaven in that sense um so he's not with a body with infirmities uh, body, exactly yeah um which is not, not supposed to be the natural state of man, right? We are supposed to be embodied. So that's why while we can speak of heaven being a good place, it's not yet perfected, or we are not yet perfected in there until the resurrection, in which we become a complete human again, body and soul, or soul and body, if that makes sense. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Yes. that's how i would take it i mean the bible isn't necessarily 100% clear on specifically what's going on with the soul but that is how i would take it i don't know if anybody else would disagree with that or has anything else to add all right yeah so that that is how i would how i would understand it all right question 9 Is heaven a place? And explain what you mean and provide biblical proof for your answer. So, yes, heaven is a place. It's a location, and it has spatial dimension. It is not aspatial. It's not some sort of uh, metaphysical concept either. Uh, Theological liberals try to make heaven and hell into some sort of symbolic or philosophical thing and not a real place. Uh, But we do know that it has spatial dimension. Um, Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus all went to heaven with bodies, and bodies imply space. Bodies take up space. Um, In the scenes of heaven uh, described in, say, Revelation, God is said to be sitting on a throne, and um, he's surrounded by those worshiping. All this implies space. And while I recognize Revelation is a highly symbolic book, I don't necessarily think this portion of it um, is symbolic into what it means. Um, so for those that are willing to allegorize visions and people going into heaven, at some point, you're just, you're just turning the entire Bible into something that's not literal truth because it's all throughout, which honestly is probably what some theological liberals want. Um, and that's more in regards actually to hell. Um, most people don't have an issue with heaven. They like the concept of heaven, but, uh, they have a problem with hell. They don't like that both in thinking that they might go there and the fact that they think that it's somehow unfair uh, that God would send people there. So um, just as uh, two proof texts that hell is actually a place, Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42. The son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So you obviously have a very vivid description of hell where there's um, it's described as a furnace of fire. That's what it's like. And then there's wailing and gnashing of teeth there on playing uh, physicality. And then um, Mark nine. if the, uh, if thine eye offends thee pluck it out, it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. Obviously fire has dimension it has space to it so this would imply that hell is in fact a real place uh question 10 is there time in heaven provide scriptural proof for your answer it is eternal but is there is there a concept of time there because obviously god is god is eternal but we would say that he's atemporal he stands outside of time yes There we go. There we go. Very specific. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I also have Revelation 6 here. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So here the souls are uh, in heaven are crying to, out to God for something that hasn't happened yet if it hasn't happened yet, implies there's still time going on, because if it was atemporal, if they were existing in an atemporal state, it would have already happened in a sense for them. You had a point, Ben? At least, at least, not for uh, not for humans. God obviously is able to do things atemporally, but for us, we're not able to do that. We are bound in time, and will always be bound in time. Any other questions or comments? Yes.
1: Just a small comment on that. Uh, the the Lord shall come, and time shall be no more. So sometimes people sing
2: that, and forget mm-hmm. that They might be something that's false. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So
2: don't you think that could be kind of in the way we're talking about the term immortal, like two understandings: time no more. It, but he created it to last forever. I feel like the time no more could be similar, like two different perspectives. On that. Yeah, yeah, like, I guess we'd have to talk to him. <laughs> That's how I would take like, time no more in the sense that we're unlimited with God forever. All right.
0: I don't know if the right has the same idea. But that's hmm. the same yeah, that is that is where um, the idea sort of comes from, that there is no time in heaven. The KJV, and I'm not sure if any other translations render it this way, do render a, a specific passage as there shall be time no more. But as Andrew pointed out, the context doesn't say there won't be time in heaven. Um, it's not what it means there. OK, uh, on to question 11. Um, where what are the biblical arguments for the truth that the spirits of believers become perfectly holy when they die? Uh, could I get somebody to read Hebrews twelve twenty two through twenty three? I think this is this makes it an open and shut case here. Uh, twenty two and twenty three. First, one to get it can read it.
1: But so you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of a living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect.
0: So there we go. Fairly straightforward. The spirits of just men made perfect. Um, yes. So, uh, and just as a as a supporting argument to this, uh, secondly, if we are in heaven when we die, we must be perfect; otherwise, heaven would be corrupt, and God will not dwell with sin in His holy dwelling place. So, a little bit of an extra argument there. Yes.
1: That now goes with a question totally
0: eradicated from mm-hmm. the agreement that it will be as he So it's the vision itself that causes him, not any prolonged period of time of the Amen. And what a wonderful what a wonderful uh, verse that is. Uh question twelve Will we know and communicate with one another in heaven? Support your answer biblically. So we already saw the example, uh, of, uh, the souls in heaven, crying out to God, um, and re- uh, making petitions of God. Uh, they communicated with God about their state and used the pronoun our, when will you avenge our, um, what was it? Our, oh, I'm not going to find it again, but, uh, they use the pronoun our there. And I think that implies that there's communication going on there. They're speaking sort of as one there. um, Heaven is also described as a city. It's described as the new Jerusalem and cities imply community and community implies communication. Uh, Also in the old Testament, we see God communicating with his angels in heaven. Uh, So heaven is not a place where there's no communication going on. God speaks to the angels and the angels speak to him. So I would not say that uh, heaven is a place where there is just worship apart from, us communicating with one another. Does anybody have any uh, questions or comments on that? Yes. Uh, good question, and I don't have a good answer for you. Obviously, in the eternal state, when we do have bodies, I uh, then obviously the question is mood. But as of how it happens right now, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. All right. Question 13, how do we know from the Bible that the spirits of all believers enter heaven at death? So we've already seen to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I think that's Paul's in the context of speaking to Christians. So he's uh, he's alluding to the fact that Christians will be with the, the Lord. I also have um, Revelation fourteen thirteen, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So they're the ones that have entered into heaven and are resting, those that die in the Lord. Um, And now to get on a little bit of uh, talking a little bit about purgatory. As our confession alludes to, nowhere in the Bible is any other place described as opposed to heaven and hell. And those two broad categories, obviously, you can talk about the different parts of hell or the different parts of heaven. But aside from those two broad categories, the scripture doesn't talk about any other place. Therefore, any other place comes from the imaginations of men. Um, And to say that there is another place that uh, the dead would go to is to say that the scriptures are actually insufficient because they don't talk about it. which contradicts God, because God has told us in the scriptures that the scriptures are sufficient. So there is there is no purgatory. If it's not contained in the scriptures, and it's, it's a matter of importance to the faith, then it, it doesn't exist. Anybody have any questions or comments on that? All right. Question 14. Is it true to say that the spirits of believers in heaven are perfectly happy? Why or why not? And I will I will pose this to the uh, to you out there before uh, giving my answer. Are they perfectly happy? Why or why not? Ben. Yes, exactly, and that's that's where I was going to go to. Um, And additionally, you also have the fact that the resurrection hasn't happened yet, so that they are still disembodied in a sense. So the souls in heaven are happy, but they are not yet perfectly happy. We will be perfectly happy on the uh, day of judgment and after uh, when God has righted every wrong, all justice has been paid out, and we have our glorified bodies. That is when we will be perfectly happy. Um, and then I just wanted to read Psalm 27 seven four. one thing I have I desire to the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So while we do have certain deficiencies um, when we are in heaven, we will be able to behold the beauty of the Lord. And that is enough to make us sufficiently happy, even if we are not perfectly happy. Yes. Yes.
2: Well I'm thinking of in comparison to where we're living
0: now. Yes. And <laughs> going there to be with Christ, we would be in a our terminology perfectly happy. Yes. <laughs> um question fifteen. Define the word Shaol as used in the Bible. So this is actually where I'm gonna start disagreeing with Sam Waldron because he has a different view on it than I do. Uh It's perfectly acceptable to uh, take his view. And in fact, it's probably the majority uh, view in the reformed uh, camp, but I'm going to present my view here and why I think Waldron's view is wrong. Um, Waldron has the view that it doesn't always mean the same thing uh, that is Sheol, which is fine. Uh, But the primary meaning he assigns to it is hell. That is the place where only the unrighteous dead go, not where the righteous dead go. Um, he says that all the righteous dead go only to heaven, even in the uh, Old Testament, and that's where I would make a, a distinction. I would say that prior to uh, the coming of Christ, all—or well, actually, the resurrection of Christ—all the righteous dead did actually go to Sheol. Now, um, Sheol is also basically the equivalent of Hades in the New Testament, um, and a good spot to uh, to see this is um, Acts two twenty-seven. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is preaching, um, and he's preaching from several Old Testament passages to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And one place that he preaches from is Psalm 1610. So in Acts 227, I'm quoting Psalm 16, he says, But thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Now, uh, the word rendered hell there in the King James is actually the Greek word Hades. But if you go back to the Hebrew of Psalm 16, it's the word Sheol. So in our inspired New Testament, we understand that Hades can also, it's the same thing as Sheol, at least in that context. Um, And this is the place that I would say even the righteous dead go to um, uh, prior to Christ's resurrection. It's not equivalent to hell in the sense of we think of hell as the place where only the unrighteous dead go to. But prior to Christ's coming, uh, all the dead went there. And there's a couple of proof texts um, that support this. And I'll be reading from the ESV for these two proof texts, um, just because it does actually render the, uh, the word there as Sheol. Uh, Genesis 37.5, and this is Jacob speaking of Joseph when he thinks that he has died. Um, and, and it's referring to Joseph. All his sons and his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. So here, Jacob, who we would have to say if there's any uh, person in the old, well, maybe not any, but we would say that of the patriarchs, surely Jacob would be uh, considered righteous uh, when he goes down to die. He says he will go down to Sheol just like his son. And then Job 7, where Job is just speaking a little bit generically about uh, who goes down to uh, Sheol, verses 9 and 10. As the cloud fades and vanishes, as he who goes down to Sheol does not come up, he returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Um, And also, I think this view makes the most sense of Luke 16, which is uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. But we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, So all the uh, dead go to Sheol and there's an upper compartment and a lower compartment there. Uh, The upper part is where the righteous dead go, and that's described as Abraham's bosom. And the lower compartment uh, where the unrighteous dead go uh, is where the unrighteous dead go. And all this uh, changed when Christ came. Christ uh, paid our for our sins, died, was buried, and resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he liberated the captives that were held there, and they ascended into heaven. And now all that die in Christ do go directly into heaven. And I do just want to say that uh, this is not only my view. Um, uh, for example, Sam Renahan wrote a book, and it's uh, one of the uh, one of the core parts of this book. But um, so I, this is not necessarily unique to me. But uh, moving on to question sixteen, does this word always refer to the same thing in the Bible? And uh, Waldron tries to make the point that it also can just refer simply to the grave, and I don't necessarily have an issue with that. Although when I looked at the proof text he provided, I felt they were actually sort of ambiguous whether or not it proved um, that uh, uh, she'll can just mean the grave. So I'm open to the possibility of that what it means, but I haven't been convinced that there's any specific passage that refers to it that way. Um, question 17, what are some false views of this term and what is their common fallacy? So uh, if you ever run into Jehovah's Witnesses and talk about what Sheol or Hades are, they'll say it's oblivion or non-existence because they are a group that believes in annihilationism, that the soul doesn't continue after death. Um, And a good place to disprove this idea is Deuteronomy 32.22. For fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn into the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. So here... Again, the underlying word for hell here is shiel, And it doesn't really make sense to say, my fire will burn down to the lowest oblivion or the lowest non-existence. That doesn't really make sense. It's very clear here that um, shiel is a place and that it's the you're burning it down to the lowest part of that place. And then I do want to uh, disagree with uh, Waldron's proof text that he uses in support of this view. Um, he... He brings up the cases of Enoch and Elijah, who did obviously go to heaven in the Old Testament. We're, we're told that, that, at least uh, explicitly with Elijah, and it's implied with Enoch that uh, they did go into heaven, but they are special cases because they didn't actually die. For example, um, Genesis 5 uh, 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Everyone else in that list is said to have died, but Enoch specific language is given to him. So I don't think it's necessarily, these are clearly exceptional examples. So I wouldn't want to build a theology off exceptional examples. Um, he also brings up, uh, let's see, um, Proverbs 23, 24, the way of life is above to the wise that he might depart from hell beneath. And again, that's that Sheol. So the Old Testament does teach that righteous will depart from Sheol, but that can simply mean that they go there and then they're able to leave, that they, they depart from it. it. doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely delivered from Sheol. Um, so I, I was not convinced by the proof text that he used uh, in his book that would say that um, uh, the heaven defini- or the, the righteous definitively went to heaven in the Old Testament. And this might seem like it's a little bit of an unimportant thing to quibble over, whether or not the saints in the Old Testament went to one place or they went to heaven. Uh, but it is actually important. The Apostles' Creed, which we recite most Sundays here, has the language of saying Christ descended into Hades. So when we recite that, that portion of the Creed, what is it that we mean? And it's important when we know what we mean and why we mean it. Um, and, uh, we say that, uh, he descended, or at least I say that he descended into Hades, uh, because that's where the dead went prior to his resurrection, whether righteous or unrighteous. And then he freed the captives there. And isn't that, isn't that glorious that we would have been sent to this, this place and been even apart from God there, but that he liberated us to go to heaven. I think that's, uh, that's glorious. Is there any questions or comments about that whole thing, about- Sheol versus Hades or Sheol and Hades So he went to Hades to get the There's there's a there's a couple reasons why he descended into Hades but that's that's one of them that he freed those uh in Hades and uh they went to heaven with him Yes Andrew Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because oftentimes you'll hear prosperity preachers say that Christ descended into hell and he continued to suffer there. And that ruins what Christ said on the cross, that it is finished. He paid for our sins there. He did not need to suffer in hell anymore for our sins. It is paid for on the cross. So that I would consider more of a heretical view that um, Christ needed to continue to suffer in hell. Uh, Question 18. What are the crucial New Testament texts which speak of the intermediate state of the wicked? Could I get somebody to read Luke 16 verses 19 through 31? A little bit of a longer passage, but it does encompass it.
2: But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will
0: repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should come from the dead. So here we're, we see that um, the rich man has been sent to a place of torment. We know this isn't the final state yet. The, uh, the judgment hasn't happened yet. Um, but he's sent to a place where he's in torment. And yet Lazarus and Abraham, by extension, are comforted. Um, a couple other proof texts for this acts 125 uh this is referring uh this is the apostles talking about replacing Judas that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place so where he's going is described as his own place and Judas as we'll remember is the son of perdition right so it would make sense that he would go there um Second Peter two twenty nine. Uh could I get or not two twenty nine? Two four through nine. Could I get somebody to read that? Second Peter two, four through nine. so to reserve the uh, the unjust unto the day of or to reserve the unjust under punishment to the day of judgment so they're under punishment even now. Um, any questions or comments on that? All right, question 19. What is the biblical evidence against the idea that man will have a second chance to be saved after they die? Um, obviously, the previous verses strongly to imply it, uh, but to this I'll also add um, Hebrews 9.27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment. So you have the connection of death and then judgment. And then uh, John versus, uh, John 8, verses 21 and 24. Um, 21, then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. And then verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. So what's bad about this is that you're dying in your sins. If there's a second chance after death, what does it matter if you died in your sins or not? Obviously dying in your sins is is the thing that you do not want. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we've already seen that... um, when we die, our, our uh, spirits are separated from our body, but we're going to be judged with what we did while in the body. So that implies that after death, there is no there is no second chance there. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll have a note here on dealing with nominal Christians or people that would hold the view that uh, there is a second chance. Um, oftentimes, when you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to believe what the Bible says... Uh, they'll try to weasel around passages like this that don't explicitly say it, uh, and they'll try to argue implications with you. But um, in this case, I think it's especially noticeable, like, where is the Bible verse that explicitly teaches what they're trying to say? Is there a Bible verse that explicitly says, oh, yeah, there will be a second chance after death? Obviously not. There's not. Um, So it's a good rule to try and get someone to actually... So try to uh, subordinate their view from directly from the bible and if they refuse to do that or unable to are unable to do that they're being a hypocrite to try and get you to uh to try and say that oh that's just implied or that's just your interpretation there um, if they're not able to substantiate it directly then they shouldn't be um they shouldn't be angry that you're um arguing from implications of verses either Question 20, what biblical passages explicitly state that both the righteous and unrighteous will be raised from the dead? We are beginning to run a little low on time here. So I will, we'll just do, actually, these are short, we'll do all three. Uh, Can I get somebody to read? Oh, Ben, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, if he, if he were to do that, he could have very well told us, but everything implies that he will not do that. So, um, Could I get somebody to read Daniel 12 too? So here we have both groups acknowledge that some are going to be raised to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Um, and then I'll just read these, these next two John 5:28 and 29. Marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And then Acts 24, 15, and have hope towards God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So both will be raised, um, whether righteous or unrighteous. Question 21, is the resurrection body the same as or different from the present body? So the answer is yes. It is both uh, the same and different. Um, It is our same body. Uh, When Jesus was raised, his tomb was empty. Uh, The clear implication that Jesus was raised with that same body. uh, For those that would hold a different view that um, we're we're basically a new body is created for us, um, that wouldn't make sense of the resurrection. Um, And we know that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. So uh, we would have a, a resurrection like his. However, while it is our body, It's not going to be the same as our body now. It will be changed. First Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So our body is going to be changed. It'll be in a glorified state. What all of that looks like is still a little bit of a mystery to us, although there are some things that are revealed about it. Uh, and that leads us into question um, 22. Is the resurrection body spiritual or material? Support your answer. And again, the answer is yes. It is both spiritual and material. Those uh, Those terms, when biblically defined, are actually not mutually exclusive, even though sometimes we can think about it like that. Um, the idea that the resurrection is an immaterial body uh, comes from a misunderstanding of one Corinthians fifteen. Uh, could I get somebody to read one Corinthians fifteen forty through forty okay. eight? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 48.
1: There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. So one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the... Body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, it is sown in dishonor,
0: it is raised in glory, it is
1: sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown it is sown a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body, there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, and the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The man, the first man was of